So when I was a kid and I was learning to uh, ride a bike without training wheels, I went through a phase where I decided that instead of braking like a normal human being, uh, I would drag my feet on the ground. And when I say that, like, I don't mean just like plant my feet on the ground and just stop with the bottoms of, of my feet. Uh, I would drag the tops of my feet behind me and slowly come to a stop. And so my dad saw me doing this, and he warned me that it was, it was a bad idea. But like most children, um, I thought that I was the smartest person in the room, and so I decided my way was, was better, my way was more fun, and I was going to keep doing things my way. Well, uh, where I grew up, we did not have a paved driveway. Uh, it was all rocks and dirt. And so uh, our driveway was this nice little hill, and I loved to ride down it because I could ride down it and just swoop back up and, and go up a hill on the other side. And so I'm outside one day, I'm doing that, I'm, I'm riding down my little hill uh, and dragging my feet behind me to stop, uh, which was a lot of fun until it wasn't because, as it turns out, if you do that with shoes on, it's one thing. If you do it barefoot, it's, it's, it's totally different. Um, I'll spare you uh, most of the details, but I can confirm that, to that toenails do grow back after they've been ripped off. Um, I was a fool. My dad told me that what I was doing was not a good idea. It was going to end up in, in something that was very painful, and it did. But I decided that I knew what was best, and I paid for that. It's like Michael mentioned last week, as we get into Psalm 14, it's important to remember that unless there is a note referencing a specific situation, uh, the Psalms are meant to apply in a variety of, of circumstances. However, when we read through them, it becomes very obvious that they weren't organized all willy-nilly. They are organized in a way that provides structure and flow. So we need to see that Psalm 14 is going right along with the flow of the last several Psalms. So beginning, uh, going back even as far as, as Psalm 9, we've seen dread rising because of the spread of wickedness. In Psalm 11, David is confronted by a, a panicked counselor about the plans and the schemes of the wicked. But at that point, he, he's, he's still portrayed and, and writes as one who is uh, pretty calm about evildoers. But then Psalm 12 strikes a different tone. There, David comes across as more desperate because of what the wicked are doing. Then in Psalm 13, David laments rising wickedness, and he pleads with the Lord for it to end. So thematically, what we've seen is sorrow rising as a result of increased evil around David. But even as sorrow has risen, these psalms also contain elements of confidence in God that he alone is able to deliver the righteous from the wicked. You know, David has repeatedly expressed confidence in the Lord to deliver and save. And so these things come together in Psalm 14 as David explains that the person who tries to live free from God is a fool, but that the righteous receive refuge under the rule of God's king. So if you will look with me, at Psalm 14, it says this, To the choir master of David, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any 
who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge at all, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Go to me, go with me to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for how your word works to instruct and shape our lives in such a way that brings glory to you. How you call to us from your word that we might know you and worship you alone. So, Father, work through your word this morning to accomplish the purposes that you've set forth from eternity past. We pray, God, that you would be glorified in our time. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. So I think there are two things for us to see in the text this morning. And and the first that I think David points out for us is the fool's condition. So it's important that we understand what David means when he credits the fool with saying, there is no God. See, when, when we read that, I think we might immediately assume that he's talking about the classic intellectual atheist who just outright denies the existence of, of any god. Like maybe a, a Friedrich Nietzsche or a Richard Dawkins, maybe that's where our minds want to go. Uh, but that's not, I think, what David is talking about. He's not talking about theoretical uh, atheism. It's more of a practical atheism. See, the, the fool here is someone who lives their life without any concern for God's authority or his standards. Those who have no, uh, those who have no bearing on how the fool, uh, those things have no bearing on how the fool lives their, lives their life. They just don't care about those, those things. Um, they're completely unconcerned with God. And so in, in David's case, the fool may belong to Israel, to God's covenant people, and yet they reject the covenant. They, they choose instead to live by their own standards. So basically, the fool is someone who refuses to acknowledge God through trustful obedience. And I think we see this uh, back in Psalm 10. I think David showed it to us there where in verse 4, he credits the wicked person as saying the same thing as the fool. There is no God. He then describes the wicked person as being a liar, murdering the innocent, seizing the poor, crushing the helpless. But coming to the end of his description of the wicked person back in Psalm 10, he says that they think to themselves... God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. So the phrase, there is no God, is used as an expression of their belief that God simply won't do anything to mankind. And if that's true, what it means is that I get to determine what is right and wrong. I am my own moral authority. Well, this is how the fool of Psalm 14 thinks and lives. The fool just does whatever they want, regardless of what God has to say. But that's a problem, because as David tells us, the fool is corrupt. And again, I think we hear corrupt, and I think our minds might go to the corporate executive who embezzles company funds in order to buy themselves a new jet ski, or a politician who takes a bribe in order to secure a vote in a certain way. And those are corrupt deeds for sure, but they are symptoms of a bigger problem. They are the result 
of a corrupt nature. It's not just that people are corrupted by things outside of them, like power or money, and that causes them to do corrupt deeds. No, we all do corrupt deeds because our whole nature has been corrupted by sin. The corruption of the human condition produces corrupt deeds from every person. And it's the corrupt nature that David is pointing to. Because humanity has been corrupted by sin, the fool does abominable deeds. Because humanity has been corrupted by sin, no one does good. Uh, Cornelius Plantinga Jr. uh, defines corruption like this. He says, It's not so much a particular sin as the multiplying power of all sin to spoil a good creation and to breach its defenses against invaders. Corruption is spiritual aids, the mysterious, systemic, infectious, and progressive attack on our spiritual immune system that eventually breaks it down and opens the way for hordes of opportunistic sins. This corruption produces the denial of God's authority and the refusal to live by His laws. But David shows us in verses 2 and 3 just how foolish this is. We're told that God is examining humanity from heaven. David used this same imagery back in Psalm 11. There, heaven is depicted as the throne room of God. He rules over all creation from heaven, and nothing escapes his gaze. There is nothing that exists outside of his rule and reign. And so here in verse 2, God is depicted as looking to see what is in man. Specifically, he is looking to see if there are any who understand. This concept of understanding is defined for us by the next line as, as any who seek after God. So the question that is being asked is, are there any who are wise? We read in Proverbs 1, 7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Well, David has told us back in Psalm 1, 2 that the righteous delight in and meditate on God's law. They desire His word. They long to bring their lives under it and be governed by it. Why? Because they fear the Lord. This fear is their reverent awe of Him. It's a tremendous respect for Him that recognizes Him as the sovereign King who is ruling over His creation. And this leads to worship of Him, which is to live according to His law. What Psalm 14 teaches is that this isn't true of the fool. The fool turns away from God and away from His law. They they reject it. And so the Lord's assessment of humanity is that all have turned aside. No one understands. No one seeks after God. And like in verse 1, we see in verse 3 that this is a product of man's corruption. Because mankind has been corrupted by sin, no one does good, not even one. No one desires to live according to the law of God. No one fears Him and worships Him. No one. You see, the psalm is getting at what lies in every human heart. Corruption abounds because of Adam's sin all the way back in Eden. There, the serpent convinced our first parents that God didn't want 
didn't want them to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good and, good and evil because it would make them like him. Deciding that the fruit would make them wise, they took and they ate. They determined that they could exercise dominion over creation just fine without him. They thought they would become wise, but instead they played the fool. Their sin introduced corruption into God's good creation. And what happened down the line as a result? Well, their oldest son, Cain, murdered his younger brother in a fit of jealousy, despite God's warning to him that sin was knocking at the door and would rule over him if he was not wise in dealing with it. Then down Cain's line, you have Lamech, who we learn took multiple wives for himself, and then he bragged to them about murdering other men, and he claimed for himself greater protection than even Cain was given. He was a fool. That's just Genesis 3 and 4. Several thousand years removed from Adam's sin in the garden, we read in Genesis 6, verse 5, that the Lord looked down and saw that man's heart was only ever bent towards evil. In Genesis 6, 11 and 12, we are told that the earth was corrupt and filled with violence, that humanity was filled to the brim with corruption. David is echoing this in Psalm 14 when he writes about the fool being corrupt. In Noah's day, the Lord looked down and all he saw was corruption. In David's day, the Lord looked down and saw the foolishness of humanity because humanity was corrupt. Paul picks up on this in Romans chapters 1 through 3. In Romans 1, he describes the Gentile as claiming to be wise, but really being fools by turning away from God, turning aside to worship creation instead of the Creator. In Romans 2, he shows that the Jews are no better. They claim to be teachers of the fools because they had the law. But then they showed themselves to be fools because they didn't do the law. And this culminates in Romans 3, 10 through 12, where Paul quotes from Psalm 14 saying, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. What the Scriptures show us is that having been corrupted by sin, all of humanity takes foolishness and calls it wisdom. In our sin, we refuse what is good, which is to submit to the rule and reign of God by refusing to bring our lives in line with His law, His word. In our sin, we call right wrong and wrong right. We make friends with evil and treat righteousness with disdain. That is our natural inclination. It is what we are bound to because our nature is corrupted. We see this in the world all around us, right? I mean, we, we live in a world that is governed by the idea that truth is relative. You have your truth, and I have my truth. And I think it's great that you have found your truth. If that works for you, that's awesome. Unless you try to impose your truth on me, then you are committing an act of violence towards me. This allows people to say, 
there is no God, without actually denying his existence. To reject his word as the standard of truth and morality is to deny the God of the Bible. And people will try to cover for this by acting spiritual, saying things like, well, God is love, and and so long as I'm being kind to others, he doesn't really care about me and about what I'm doing. David calls that being a fool. But it's no less foolish when we sit in our churches on Sunday, sing songs and hymns, listen to sermons and prayers, and then refuse to conform our lives Monday through Saturday to His Word. I I sing Amazing Grace on Sunday, and then I'm a jerk to my spouse and my kids all week long. I offer them none of the grace that I claim God has shown me. I hear a sermon about how God hates gossip, and then I spend the hour after the service at lunch complaining about someone I just sat in the worship service with. I I demand our church services conform to what I like. The sermons need to be relevant, and they need to deal with what I think I need, and the songs just really need to stir my emotions. And when that doesn't happen, I say things like, you know what? I just, I just don't feel like we worshiped today. Songs were too slow. The sermon was too long. It just wasn't for me. I make the worship service about me instead of about the worship of God who calls us to worship Him and establishes in His Word what worship is. The God of the Bible doesn't hand out participation trophies. His word is the final authority for Christian doctrine and practice. To sit under it weekly, to listen to it taught, to say that we enjoy it, but then to not have it shape how we think about ourselves, the world around us, and how we live is the mark of a fool. Verses 2 and 3 make it clear that the Lord isn't interested in the table scraps of our week. His authority extends to all of it, and His people know that and seek Him. What comes natural to us is not to seek God. It is to reject God, and His people are aware of that in in themselves. So His people come to Him to have their desires transformed and made new, brought in line with His own. But the fool doesn't have any interest in that. And that is made clear when their passions and desires produce a life that is wholly inconsistent with the character of God. And so if you find yourself routinely hearing God's word, but unwilling to have your life conformed to it, that is foolishness and it is sin. And when we see this in our lives, we must repent and see our repentance as a gracious gift from God who redeems his people from their corruption. The fool will not repent or give thanks to God for his grace to us. And David acknowledges that in Psalm 14. And that brings us to the second part of our text, which is the fool's fate. And so after dealing with the the foolish mindset that results from our corrupted nature, David begins to explain the position the fool has put themselves in before God. And so, deceived into thinking that they are free from God, the fool embraces their evil evil desires. They are evildoers, according to David in verse 4. See, the, the fool does not understand their covenantal obligations to the Lord. 
They lack spiritual knowledge, so they refuse to call on the Lord. They do not pray for wisdom or for insight into his law. They do not seek to understand his ways or try to live by his holy and just standards. And so what they love is evil, and all that they do is evil. David is depicting a society where the overwhelming majority of people feel no need to cry out to God for anything. This results in evil being championed. Right is called wrong and wrong is called right. Those who embrace what is acceptable to the fool, they're warmly received. But those who reject what is evil are pushed to the side and marginalized. In their foolishness, the evildoer devour the righteous. They bring ruin on them. They turn their wrath towards those who are righteous. They aim to destroy those who seek what is good. And at the same time, we see in verse 6 that the poor are not helped. They're driven further into poverty. They're a means to an end. They can be taken from because they can't defend themselves. See, when the, when the fool sees that they are in need, they meet their need by any means necessary. Rather than calling upon the Lord, crying out to the Lord in humble submission to Him and understanding uh, that they are in desperate need of Him, they take and they cheat and they murder whatever they feel is in their best interest because they have no concept of righteousness and that they will have to answer for their evil. They live for the moment, unconcerned about what comes next. And so they bring ruin on people and society but don't care. Their guiding light is preserving their own happiness and their own self-interests at the expense of all others. The law of God established for Israel what a just society would look like. Under the law of God, Israel was meant to flourish and be a light to the nations. They were to display what it, is, what it was like to live under the rule and reign of God. But by rejecting his rule and reign, refusing to seek him or call upon him, the fool pushes the nation towards becoming a wasteland. Instead of all people flourishing as the justice and righteousness of God permeates the culture, lawlessness was the rule of the day. So the poor and the outnumbered, they're crushed all day long. Rather than Israel being a picture of flourishing, David is looking on a society who has no idea where to even begin when it comes to doing good. And in later years, God would speak through the prophets to describe Israel's continued descent into immorality and wickedness. So we read through Psalm 14, you may have uh, Amos and Micah and the minor prophets just echoing in your head. I want to point you to Jeremiah 4.22 where the Lord says of His people, For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. The fool thinks they are wise, but are oblivious to the fact that they are governed by evil. All the while, the fool has no concept of the danger that they're in. David says in verse 5 that in their lack of knowledge and unwillingness to call on the Lord, they are in a place of great terror. They attack the righteous and oppress the poor, but the Lord is with 
both. He stands with the righteous and is a refuge for the poor. So the fool who has set himself against the righteous and the poor has actually set himself against God. But while the fool refuses to pray to God, David turns to him in prayer. David prays for a salvation that he fully trusts the Lord to provide. And this is made clear when he says, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. David knows this restoration will come. And he knows that it will come through the rule and reign of God's anointed king. And we know that because of David's reference to salvation coming from Zion. We read back in Psalm 2 verse 6 that the Lord's anointed king has been placed on Zion. In 2 uh, verses 8 and 9, this king is given rule and authority over all the earth. And in 2 verse 12, having authority, he brings God's judgment against those who oppose God. We also read in Psalm 9, 11 and, and 9, 14, that the Lord sits enthroned in Zion, and that in the gates of Zion, the righteous praise the Lord for saving them from the wicked. So Zion is being presented as the place where the Lord will dwell with his people, where his rule is established and all evildoers are dealt with. So while the fool thinks that they are free from God's rule, the righteous are desperate to receive refuge in his reign. And this is what prompts David's question in verses 4 and 5 about the fool not understanding that they are in great terror because they do not call on the Lord. The fool thinks they will not have to give an account for anything. But David knows that they will. And he prays for that day to come. We know the, the scenario that David is describing all too well. And it's still true in our day that, that foolishness is everywhere. People claiming to be religious or spiritual live as practical atheists. Believing God would never require them to live in a way that is contrary to what seems right to them, they are totally unaware that they will be accountable for their actions. But in a world where you do you is the mantra of the day, Anyone who insists that God alone defines truth and morality is rejected as judgmental and immoral. Biblical ethics are called wicked and oppressive, and personal autonomy is celebrated. But what promises freedom and human flourishing ends in moral corruption and even violence. It turns out that when everyone gets to decide for themselves what is right, my truth always conflicts with someone else's truth. And this results in a culture that is constantly in turmoil. And yet, God's people have hope in the midst of the turmoil because the day that David longed to see has come in the incarnation of God the Son. Through Christ, God has revealed to us a better way. He has made wisdom available to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, 24, that Christ is the wisdom of God. And in verses 30 and 31, that He became to us wisdom from God so that we would boast in the Lord, those who repent of sins and turn to Him in faith. Being the wisdom of God Jesus lived in perfect submission to the will of the Father. His trustful obedience deserved blessing, but instead he received cursing in our place. 
He was devoured by the wrath of God for us as our sinless substitute. And so through His death and resurrection, foolish, corrupt humanity receives restoration. And in Colossians 2 verse 3, Paul tells us that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, Adam sinned, and under him we all received corruption and foolishness. But under Christ, the new and better Adam, in his rule and reign, fools are made wise. We come to know and love the ways of God. We live by His ways through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit enables God's people to know His Word, and through the Spirit, that Word is applied to our lives as we grow in the trustful obedience of Christ. In Christ, those who were once fools are made new. We are declared righteous and receive the refuge that David longed to see. So for those who turn from sin and begin trusting in Christ, God has provided salvation from the terror that is still to come against all foolishness. God's people are spared from the wrath reserved for the fool. That He sought us when we were fools. That He broke through our willful ignorance, called us and saved us through His Son should drive us to call on Him day after day. Prayer should be a delight to God's people. Having been fools who refused to call on the Lord, that He called us and made us wise in Christ, should cause us to constantly pray for His help to not turn back to our sin. Recognizing that He has given us a whole new nature in Christ with new holy desires, we should be praising and thanking and confessing sin to Him without ceasing. Seeking God in His Word should be a joy to us, not a chore. Coming to His Word so that we can know His will and see where our lives need to be conformed to it should be the launching point for our everyday. Being renewed in Christ makes us aware of our desperate need for the Scriptures to reveal where the old corrupt man still hangs on so that we can give him the boot. But the question is, do we make it a practice to seek God and to call upon Him. It's one thing to know that the Scriptures are the Christian's authority for doctrine and practice, and to know that prayer, that in prayer we humble ourselves under God's rule. It's another thing to make those regular parts of our day. See, it's easy to say those are things that I know that I should be doing, but to acknowledge that without making an effort to actually do it is foolish. It becomes even more foolish when you consider how often we complain about the corruption that we see in the culture around us. We are quick to diagnose society as influenced by evil rather than righteousness. We see it, we point it out, we complain to one another about how awful it is, and we blast that all over social media. But do we stop and consider that it does not help when we are not having our own lives conformed to God's Word because we don't know it? and because we are slow to pray. We see injustice and unrighteousness ruling the day, and we long for it to come to an end, and those are good desires. But those desires have to be met with our lives and our churches being conformed to the things God desires. 
We don't have anything to offer anyone except for the message of Christ crucified for sins, buried and resurrected from the dead to save sinful people from their sins. When our own lives are not being transformed by that hope, by that message, the message we preach is that the gospel actually isn't enough to change us, so why would anyone else need it? When we conform our churches to our preferences and what we think will will be most interesting to people, we lose sight of the fact that the only thing that we have to offer them is the gospel. When the hope of the gospel is not shaping our lives and churches then we are just as culpable for injustice and unrighteousness as the culture we complain about so much. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In the cross, God has established the reign of his king. His kingdom establishes what true justice looks like. In Christ, we have access to true, everlasting wisdom from God and are taught the just values and ways of His kingdom. He he reveals these things to us in His Word. He has given us access to Himself through the blood of Christ so that we can approach Him boldly in prayer to plead for help and wisdom as we navigate a corrupt world. If we desire the values of God's kingdom to spread, and if we desire human flourishing then we ought to give ourselves to prayer for God to do what only He can do. But too often, like a kid who receives wise advice from a parent, we ignore the tools at our disposal and we try to feel our way through life doing what seems right to us. When our Bibles sit on the shelf day after day without a glance and prayer is an afterthought while we just go about our business, it says something about who we want ordering our daily lives. We say we're too busy or too tired. There are many reasons we give as to why we are slow to seek God, and then we wonder why we continue to struggle with the same sins. But that's what happens when we starve ourselves of the means of grace that God has made available to us. If you're in Christ, the time to play the fool is past. Drink deeply and regularly from His Word. Pray without ceasing. And trust Him to do the work only He can do, renewing you in the image of His Son. And if you realize that you're not among those who will receive refuge in His rule, then turn to Christ and find real wisdom, the kind that leads to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the love that You've shown us in Christ. When we were foolish, corrupt, seeking evil, loving evil, You sought us. You took us for yourself. You called us and came. We thank you for your grace and your mercy to us in Christ. Lord, as recipients of that mercy and that grace, I pray that we would be devoted to your word and to prayer, the means of grace that you've given to shape us into the image of Christ, that we would live in a way that pleases you, that through your word and prayer you would teach us what justice looks like, that we would apply it to the world around us. And God, help us. So we're desperate for you. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.